0: You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, Bringing Theology to Life. We're continuing our journey through this book that we have called the Book of Revelation, or the Apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And as I've said many times, this is really a book I believe the world needs to hear right now. If there is anything that this world needs, it is a revealing of the person of Jesus Christ. You may have noticed there is a lot of brokenness in this world, there is a lot of confusion and anger at the moment, and probably more division in this world than, well, in my lifetime than I have ever experienced. Almost on every front, people are divided on two sides of the aisle and never the twain shall meet. In many ways, I would say you are witnessing a paradigm shift in society. The final vestiges of liberal democracy that have always been built upon Judeo-Christian principles is giving way to something else. We don't quite know what yet. I would say we are leaning towards what people call a biopolitical technocracy. Basically, this is an elite group of leaders who are no longer using government to protect freedoms, but instead take it upon themselves to manage your life. And this never really ends well. We have many examples of this in history. This causes people, you see, to put their hope in man in government and in leaders, rather than in God. You go to the government, whoever's in charge, when you need this, when you need that, surely they will save us, is the mantra of this sort of a, a leading. And it's always done with a heavy hand. We are seeing increasing what we would call tribalism, that is, people splitting themselves into different categories by different, many different ways and separating from one another. This is creeping into everyday life. Yet, if I could stand back and look at this from a bird's eye view, I'd say one of the things that is always lurking behind these types of issues is, of course, the spiritual battle behind it. But also, in people's hearts and minds, it is simply that lost people fear death. That is something that has always held humanity in its grasp. No one escapes it. Well, in fact, there was one who escaped it, the one who is being unveiled in this book. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, The writer to Hebrews says that through death he might render powerless him who had the power over death. That is the devil. He had the power over death. Death is always his biggest weapon. Death has cast that long shadow over human history. Death is not part of God's original creation. It says in the Bible that death is an enemy, an intruder into this world and the last enemy to be defeated will be death. Christ defeated it when he rose from the grave And we're in a period now where we still see it in many ways, but at the end of this book, we're going to see no more death. But that is it. But then in Hebrews, it goes on, and it says that Jesus' mission was to deliver all those who, through the fear of death, were subject to slavery, lifelong slavery. And you study human history. Man has always tried to come up with a way to beat death. But yet, they they want to do this on their own strength without Jesus Christ. Let me give you a few examples. Everyone familiar with him? We've all poured a lot of money into his business, haven't we, over the years? Yes, this is the man who recently flew to space in an interesting-shaped rocket. <laughs> I guess when you're that rich, <laughs> you don't really mind that people are going to make fun of you. Elon Musk was having a field day. However, the latest thing about Jeff Bezos is that he is spending huge amounts of his fortune now on the search for immortality, on the search to beat death. This is actually not something in the backwaters of society. This is a massive industry now. This is MIT's technology review. The Amazon founder is investing heavily in experimental genetic research to reverse the aging process. This has been tried before, but obviously our tech has advanced a lot in recent years. This is really nothing new, though. It's been going on since the beginning of human history. Most mythologies in the world, most cultures have some sort of myth very similar to what Bezos is doing in these laboratories. 16th century, it was the conquistadors. They were searching for the fountain of youth. Remember that? That's been a while. You'll hear that in many, many stories, the fountain of youth. In the East, it was the search for what they called the elixir of life. You may notice then there's an article from the BBC News, the terracotta army protecting one of the uh, ancient Chinese emperors. A lot of his time, this particular emperor, I forget his name, but was spent searching for the elixir (coughs) of life. And of course in the Western world, we have the Holy Grail, which of course, you drink from the cup of Christ and you get eternal life, don't you? We all know know the story, and I'm making fun, but obviously these things are actually quite serious. They have actually shaped cultures and many people's destinies over the years, but in RJ, in the 21st century, for tech gurus, it is the science of epigenetics driven by the worldview of what has been classed as transhumanism. Has anyone heard that term before? Transhumanism. Become familiar with it. You're going to see it a lot in the upcoming days. It's not something that's just on the fringe. This is a very, very well-funded area of research now. Transhumanism. It's an article in Forbes, Transhumanism and the Future of Humanity, Seven Ways the World Will Change by 2030. It's quite shocking when you read through this article, seven things that they want to do. But to understand it, more importantly, I want you to understand the worldview behind transhumanism. If I could define it for you, it is the belief or theory that the human race can evolve beyond its current physical and mental limitations, especially by means of science and technology, to become almost like a superhuman, we could say. Again, this is nothing new. Think, think of Hitler. This is what he wanted when he was trying to form the Aryan race, the perfect, breeded race. Stalin tried something similar in, during the days of the wo- World War In these types of things. It's been tried before. The transhumanist project is the latest face. In the 2018 book, To Be a Machine, this is a, an award-winning book, actually, It says this about transhumanism, the the transhumanist project. It is their belief that we can and should eradicate aging as a cause of death. This is what Bezos is investing so much money in. That we can and should use technology to augment our bodies and our minds. Now, pay attention to what's being said here. To augment your mind. We'll talk about that a bit more. That we can and should merge with machines, remaking ourselves finally... In the image of our own higher ideals. I want you to focus on that last phrase. We may remake ourselves in the image of our own higher ideals. Now you may pick up on that if you're a Christian. That's very biblical language there because one of the most foundational teachings of the Bible is that mankind is made in whose image? In the image of God. But yet transhumanism a worldview that completely rejects any concept of God, is seeking to take mankind to the next stage of human evolution, and that next stage of human evolution is to make yourselves in the image of the ideals that that culture is promoting. This is where it is going, this is where our world is heading right now. Full body and behaviour modification using science (coughs) and technology. We are well down this path already, shaping us in the image of these technocratic elites, And as we shall see as we study the book of Revelation, that image is actually the image of the man of sin. It is an anti-God image that people are shaping themselves in and you get carried along with this. Now what will this look like? Who knows? Let me give you a taste. Ethics professor Parker Crutchfield, this is very recent, proposes a solution for widespread opposition and non-compliance to government mandates dealing with covid This is just one example, but this comes from the transhumanist worldview. He wants to give people what he has classed as morality pills to make them more cooperative. Listen to what he says. My research in bioethics, bioethics is often linked to transhumanism. My research in bioethics focuses on questions like how to induce those who are non-cooperative. Remember that quote I read from the book? Augment our minds and our behavior. This is social engineering, what we call this going on here. To me, it seems the problem of coronavirus defectors could be solved by moral enhancement. Whose morals? Those at the top of the pyramid who say what everyone else's morals should be. That's the idea here. Could be solved by moral enhancement. Like receiving a vaccine to beef up your immune system, people could take a substance to boost their cooperative pro-social behavior could a psychoactive pill be the solution to the pandemic? Now, I find it shocking that this stuff is in print and this is actually what people are looking at because it doesn't take very much imagination to see how this could end very, very badly. We've all seen the films. <laughs> do you know what I mean? This is this is like stuff out of a science fiction novel. But this is true. This is a, a main, almost a mainstream uh, belief system now. Psychotropic drugs used to make people adhere to the social status quo. What does that do with freedom? individual freedoms. At the moment we're still clinging to individual freedoms this is the war of our time you could say but these sorts of issues, a morality pill, very interesting there's actually a verse that I find fascinating in light of this, in the end, when we get to Revelation 18, we're going to speak about it that talks about this deceptive force that has come across the world and it says because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery that's how it's translated, the word in Greek is pharmakia it's the same word for drugs the whole world was deceived. Like, I'm not saying this is that, please don't misunderstand me. Um, I'm just, it's just a fascinating link that, that I feel is just interesting at this time. But again, this is transhumanism. This is the sort of thing they want to do. But the ultimate quest behind it is to overcome man's greatest problem, which has always been death. Okay? That, that is what we're really looking at here. The tragic irony is that the only real solution to death is absolutely free. You see? There is only one person who can promise eternal life and it doesn't come from a bottle or a pill. It comes from the one who is life himself. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And in John 17, he said this, listen, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And in verse 4, verse 14, in the same book of John, He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And obviously he's speaking about the Holy Spirit. But you can see why all these things, the elixir of life, the fountain of of youth, coming from whatever God tries to tell us, Satan will try to corrupt. And he will end up trying to draw men away from seeing the truth and send them on never-ending quests for things that are not real. He is the deceiver. That is what deception actually is. We need the word of God to show us the way on this. The true living water comes from Jesus Christ. Now with all of that in mind, that's just by way of introduction, I want to see how this person, this giver of life is revealed in the letter to Philippi. So let's read Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from there, from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, Philadelphia. Just for reference there, we're still dealing with this set of seven churches that are found in Turkey today. You can see Philadelphia is at the bottom on the right there. We'll let you all This is almost the last church. Laodicea is the last church, and Laodicea is going to be a fascinating study. But Philadelphia is the church that everyone wants to be a part of. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word Philadelphia. Did someone say cheese. cheese? Cheese, okay, cheese. Anyone else? It is not, we're not talking about the home of the Italian stallion. Did someone say Will Smith? Did they? <laughs> we're not talking about the Fresh Prince, although he did live in Philadelphia. Although, fascinatingly, there is actually a link because Philadelphia, the town of the West Philly where the Fresh Prince grew up, was actually founded by a Quaker called William Penn, an English Quaker who fled religious persecution and came to the shores of Pennsylvania and he started the colony of Philadelphia and he wanted it to be a place of freedom, of brotherly love, escape from religious persecution. So being a religious person, he obviously did have this letter that we're studying, the letter of the Church of Philadelphia, in his head and that's why he named it. And there's a William Penn there on the, the landing and that's why it's called Philadelphia. Philadelphia means, the word Philadelphia means, city of brotherly love. So that, so there is actually a link there, tenuous link, but it's still there. <laughs> now, let me tell you why it's actually called the city of brotherly love. If you go back into history, 2nd century BC, the founder of this city, a man called Attalus II, he had a brother called Eum- Eumenius II. They were both kings of this Pergamon Empire, and th- at this point, Philadelphia was part of their kingdom. There's a whole political story behind it, but basically when Eumenes had been king and he was not the king any longer and his, young, his younger brother, I believe, was the king now, but they still worked very closely, still very powerful, the Roman Senate wanted to try and break the bond between these two, and they invited Attalus II to Rome. They showered him with offers and gifts if he would just betray his brother and allow Rome to basically, for political reasons, take control of this area. And as the story goes, Attalus was outraged by this attempt to try and get him to betray his brother, and he left the Senate without accepting any of their gifts. And because of that, he was nicknamed Philadelphus, which means brotherly love he would not betray his brother and that's, that's the history of how that city became called Philadelphia and now we're going to see the same concept being used as we're talking about believers who had brotherly love for one another in this same city. It was a prosperous city. It sat on basically on the main highway between east and west as all of these cities pretty much have. It had many magnificent temples so much that it actually earned the nickname of being the Little Athens. Athens being the Greek capital where all the major temples were but these ones had some pretty impressive ones and it was called Little Athens. Most of these temples as we've seen in all these cities were to the Olympian gods, Zeus and Artemis and all these different characters that we've looked at as well as many temples to the different Roman emperors. Like Athens, Philadelphia was granted the status of being a temple warden. This means that they were particularly in charge of maintaining some of the emperor worship cults that happened there and they actually gave their temple the title of their emperor, the Son of the Holy One. Remember we saw right at the beginning of this study that Caesar used to be called Son of the Divine. It's a similar sort of thing going on here. Son of the Holy One, which is why I believe we see that Jesus refers to himself with these words in this letter. He's making a point to this city. Philadelphia also had another important purpose. It was basically a border town, and it was founded here to be on the, the front, the Western Front, we might say, with the idea of being an outpost to spread Hellenistic ideas and Greek culture to the, to the wider Lydian and Phrygian regions that were still had little groups of barbarians and people who hadn't come under the idea of Rome at this time. So it was a missionary town for Greek culture, you could say, i.e. it had an open door. That was the whole point of it, and Jesus, I believe, is making reference to that again. So let's just jump straight in. He says, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. So it says, he who is holy. I believe, firstly, he's making a contrast between what they would have been referring to the Roman emperor, the holy son of God. He's saying, nope, that's not right. There is only one who is holy. And the word for true there means true and not fake. It has that emphasis. The emperor is fake. He is not the son of divine. He is not holy by any stretch of the imagination. There's only one, in fact, in the whole history of the human race who has ever been truly holy like that. And it's this man that's being unveiled in this book, Jesus Christ. He is holy and he is true. One of the other things about this title, to refer to Jesus as holy, is actually also expressing that he is divine. He is the son of God. This term holy is an expression you'll find throughout the Bible that is uniquely and only applied to God the Father and, obviously, Jesus Christ. Most famously, in the book of Isaiah. Do you remember that famous vision where Isaiah is being called and he's given his missionary to be a prophet, his mission to be a prophet, and it says that he saw the throne room of God and around about were, were, were these creatures who were crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6, verses one to three. And now this title is being applied to Jesus Christ, which is clearly supposed to make the point that Jesus is God. That's a big debate that's gone on over years. You, you meet it in the culture in many ways all, all the time today. I like Jesus. He was a great man, good teacher, some good philosophy, some good ethics, blah, blah, blah. Oh, but he wasn't God. That's missed the point. That Jesus is not the Jesus we care about or are even speaking about. We're talking about the one revealed in Scripture who is holy. He is divine. He is Jesus, God the Son. You see, it's important that we understand that because this is what qualifies Jesus to be that perfect sacrifice. Do you remember when the Passover lambs were brought? It says that for 14 days they had to be tested by the priest to check that there was no blemish in them, no spot, nothing wrong with them at all. And remember Jesus is referred to as our Passover lamb. He was an unblemished lamb. There was no sin within him. That is the reason why he could be the substitute for our sins. Being a substitute that's just the same as us is absolutely no good at all. It doesn't work. Only a holy and sinless substitute could willingly lay down his life for our sins and put himself in our place. He is righteous in all his ways and all his deeds and he is the one who makes us holy too in him. This is a great cause of praise in the angelic realm. We always see this in the Bible, that people are always proclaiming, these angelic beings are proclaiming the holiness of God all the time. And again, I believe this is in contrast to the gods of the Roman Olympiad that we've seen that were so big in this culture that ordered all of their social life around their feasts and their festivals and their businesses and their trade guilds. We've seen it over the years, always patron deities of these Roman gods. If you study Roman mythology and Greek mythology, one thing you'll notice about these gods, supposedly, they're not holy. They're made in the image of man, which tells you where their origination came from. They kill each other They sleep with each other's wives, they rape each other, they look after power, they banish each other from their kingdoms, pretty much just a representation of what the kingdoms of the world do at this time. That is where it comes from, but no, the one who is being revealed in this book is holy, righteous, unblemished, spotless lamb. That is Jesus Christ, that is the truth. You see, the world, a rebellious world, rejects the truth of God's holiness. You remember Peter's sermon, right after Jesus, uh, right back in the book of Acts. He speaks to those leaders who had Jesus crucified and he says, you disowned the holy and righteous one and you asked for a murderer to be granted instead. That's the story when Pilate tried to release Jesus. So who do you want, him or Barabbas? Barabbas was was a, a thug, basically, of the time. He was a murderer. And the crowd released the murderer. The unblemished lamb was sent to the cross after that. That's that's the story, that's what Peter's referring to. Never be shocked what people will accept when they've rejected God. You see this all the time. It just it it kind of you can't believe things are happening, but they do happen like that. When you reject the truth, something will fill its place. There's no middle you don't just sort of wander around in this void of happiness. Something will fill its place at some point. You may not even know it's happening, but something will fill its place. It says, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. The key of David, this is a very important term. It speaks of the governmental authority of King David. King David being the most famous king of Israel. If you're interested, we have actually, I have a, should have brought it really, but I have replicas on my office of these particular archaeological things that we have that actually mention King David. The Tel Dan tablet. So we, we have good archaeological evidence of, of King David and ultimately we have, We're all here because we worship one of David's descendants, Jesus Christ, who came from that line. This will explain to you why he had to come from this line. He was a descendant of David. Years ago, there was a covenant. God made a covenant with David in the book of 1 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. I'll summarize it to you in Psalm 89. It says, I made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Now you can go to Israel today and there's no Davidic throne. There's no throne with a, with, with a king in David's line sitting on it. So this promise seems to be that it didn't come true. If you, if you look at the story, where is the descendant of David? Who has the right to sit on the throne of David? Now, that's true, it's gone right now. But the promise is that there will always be someone to sit on the throne. There is one descendant of David, who right now is in heaven with his father, And what we are studying in the book of Revelation is when he decides, because he is that descendant of David, he will come back and take that throne once more. That is what this book is all about. That is the greater descendant of David. There's always been someone since 33 AD when he was crucified and resurrected. Jesus Christ holds this title. Jeremiah 23 verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, this is Jesus, he will reign as king and act wisely. He will do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Another definite statement. That Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is God. He is the descendant of David. This is another reason why it has to be Jesus. It can only be Jesus. Why we can stand up here with confidence and say, only Jesus is the truth, the way, the truth and the life. Yes, that means all other religions are false, basically. Because they do not preach the same Jesus. This is what we're talking about here. It had to be Jesus. Because it had to be a descendant of David. Is the only one that was promised the right to rule, a descendant of David. Why do you think the New Testament begins, not with some fantastic story or some amazing thing to catch your attention, with a genealogy, a page of names, so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. The whole point of that is to prove to you that this person that the gospel is unveiling, this, this person, Jesus Christ, is a descendant of King David in his humanity. That's why, because he has the right to take this throne. The famous Christmas story, Luke 1, 30 to 33, the words to Mary. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. You've probably heard that at a carol service or at a Christmas service. Look at the next part that often gets missed out. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And look, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. That's the future promise that has not yet been fulfilled. We've seen the first half of that verse fulfilled. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. This has happened 2,000 years ago. But it then says, and goes on, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. That's what we're going to see in the book of Revelation. His kingdom having no end when he comes back. Now in David's day, actual King David in BC times, he laid the authority, what's called the keys of David, on one of his servants called Eliah King. And this is the quote that Jesus is referencing in this letter. I'll read it to you just so you can see it. Isaiah 22. It says, Then I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, I'll clothe him with your tunic, tie a sash on him, and trust him with your authority. That's the point here. He will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah, and I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. And when he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open. So you see, that's a, Jesus is directly quoting from the book of Isaiah here. This Jesus does. Remember, I said the Revelation quotes from the Old Testament almost its entire throughout. This is one of those versions there. And notice those keys were placed on his shoulder. This is the government authority now being given. This man was now in charge of who comes in to see King David. And I believe this is teaching us a very important lesson about the ultimate Davidic king, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever has the key of David is in the same way responsible for being allowed who comes into the king's kingdom. Jesus Christ now has the key of David. You only get access to the kingdom by coming through him. That is the point here. Remember an equally famous Christmas verse, Isaiah 9, 6. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And remember, this is written hundreds of years before Jesus even existed. The government will rest on his what? On his shoulders. Where's the key of authority laid? On his shoulders. That's the point that's being made here. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And listen, there will be no end to the increase of his government of peace on the throne of David and his kingdom. You see how integral the concept of the throne of David is to the Christian faith. I know your deeds. Let's move on. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Your deeds. What are these deeds? Quite simply, I believe it's what he says right there. You've kept my word and you have not denied my name. Jesus and his word. How often does this theme keep coming back to us in the book of Revelation? It's all about Jesus and his word. What does this tell us? If you're a Christian here today, What does this tell us about what our attitude to the Word of God should be? Do you remember the message to Sardis that we studied last time? What was his message to that church? Wake up, Jesus said to them. Wake up. This church, the Church of Philadelphia, was very much awake. And they were keeping the Word of God, and they were not denying the name of Jesus Christ, even in the face of persecution. This is an awake church. They had an open door, it says. Now again... This is really referring to their fruitfulness in evangelism. They had an open door. Often throughout the Bible, the apostles will talk about an open door for ministry. We use that expression, don't we? If you have an open door, walk through it. We understand what's being said here. If you have an opportunity to share, an opportunity to tell of Jesus Christ, you use that open door. Now, we do well to remember that when the door is opened by Jesus, nothing and no one but him can shut it. Sometimes we may think that the world is is trying to shut it, And sometimes we almost feel like we are powerless in in the light of that with the world. However, I believe Jesus has the keys. He is the one who opens the doors and shuts the door. And as long as the door of the gospel is open, which is this age, as long as the church is here, this door is open, we are called to go through it and proclaim the message of the gospel. Now, for those of us who have not, if you're here today and you have not walked through that door, i.e., I mean, you have not seen the King in his glory, you have not given your life to him, you have not understood that he is the way and the truth of the life, the Bible very clearly says now is the day of salvation, meaning this time, this age when the church is here telling people about him. The only reason we have been commissioned to tell people about him is because one day that door is going to shut, and we will see the last era of this history usher in. This is exactly what this whole book is explaining to us. That's why you may have sensed already there is an urgency in studying this book. There is, I believe you're supposed to feel that sort of expectancy of the soon coming of Jesus Christ because you'll feel well, Jesus Christ giving you that open door, drawing you in. We do well to remember that. Now I love that the only measure of Christian success, he has nothing bad to say to this church, the measure of Christian success is whether you've kept his word and glorified his name. Nothing else. Not how many people you've led to the Lord, not how big your church is, how big your ministry is, how many books you've sold, whatever accolades we may want to say, have you kept his word and not denied his name? That's the measure of Christian success. I love that. It puts everyone on a level playing field. And that, that's what Jesus Christ looks for. He says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie... I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. He has no criticism. Now this is an unusual verse. We we spoke of these people before. I'm not going to go back into who who, uh, they are. They're obviously people who are opposing the message at this time. He is not saying that they are going to come and worship and bow down in that sense, the Philadelphian believers. But I believe it's basically recognition in front of the Philadelphian believers that Jesus Christ is Lord Because one day it says, every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. And that's the theme, I believe, that's being expressed here. Verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from that hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now we see the promise to this faithful church. Because they kept his word, that means they loved his word. It was ordering their life, they were clinging to it as a light in this world. They did not deny his name because they were walking in the spirit, thus proving the genuineness of their confession and of their faith. It's easy to say words. It's easy to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, blah, blah, blah. But you have to actually come to the Lord personally, and this will usually be evidenced by a desire and a will to keep his word and please the Lord. And that's not because some church leader is telling you that's what you've got to do. That will end up in a horrible mess. We've seen that in church history too. It has to come from your desire that is given to you because you love the Lord. That's the, uh, that's the motivation for Christian service there. But he says, because you've kept my word. Because of that, they are exempt from what is described as the hour of testing which is about to come upon the whole world. Now a lot has been written about this verse. If you're familiar in what we call eschatological debates, this is a verse that comes in very heavily with a lot of stuff written to it. I don't want to go into it in huge amounts of depth now because we will come back to it many times throughout this study, but I will introduce to you this topic now. It surrounds a debate popularly known as the rapture of the church. I don't like that term because it's been so popularized with a Hollywood slant to it that I just don't like it. I prefer to refer to it as the gathering or the collection. I remember I gave you that imagery of the bridegroom coming for his bride. That is a much nicer way, I believe, of putting to it and it sticks with the biblical uh, tradition that we have here. But this is referring to a time when Jesus decides this year is coming back, he wants his kingdom back, the, gospel, the door, what we're talking about, that door for the gospel is closing and therefore the people he has established to tell people about the gospel, their time is done. We read about this in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the event. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That is the event. It's, a, it's an event in the final stages of Earth's history. The discussion is not really about the event. This has been resurrection, has always been something, Jesus obviously being the chief foundation and the first fruits of the resurrection. The discussion is about the, the timing. That, that's the, the controversial debate. Now, just as a caveat. There are many good people, many brilliant minds, many faithful brothers and sisters who have believed different of things about the timing of this event. I believe it's one of these areas where we need to learn to agree, disagree rather agreeably, rather than tearing other people down, rather than producing ad hominem attacks and saying that people are not looking at the text properly and assigning motives. Let's just avoid and step back from all of that and try and see what the Bible is teaching here. Now, chronology can be difficult. We're trying to harmonise many different big themes in Scripture. The resurrections, the judgments, the day of the Lord, the appearing of certain things. There's a lot. People have spent lifetimes studying this sort of thing. So it's not an easy issue, so let's not oversimplify it either. As we have seen, as I've mentioned a few times, the Bible does seem to imply that right before the end of this age, before the king returns, there will be a time of trouble on this earth like we have never seen before. This is referred to sometimes as the final birth pangs that give birth to the kingdom of Christ. This is that final time when all of those who have rejected Christ and usurped authority over this world will realise the king is coming and they try and fight the king. This is basically what this time is referring to. There are wider purposes to it that we'll discuss as we go through. In the Bible, it's often referred to as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord's wrath, or some people call it the tribulation, the great tribulation. All of these terms are related to this period of time that we're talking about. The idea is that the king is coming. He is testing the earth. And those people who are confirmed in their rejection of him at this time will be treated as usurpers to the throne. That is the best way to think of this time period. The question then becomes... Is the church present for that period? What purpose will it have to be in that period? Those who believe that she is not, of which is the view I will be presenting, find support for that in this verse. It says, we'll keep you from. Now, the debate is around, does does the Greek mean keep you from, or does it mean keep you through? Some people say the church is still here, but God sort of protects them, keeps them through it. And there's books written about what what the the Greek phrase terio ek means here, keep you from, keep you through. Quite frankly, I think that's a slight diversion because the Greek can actually be translated both ways as, as language often can. It depends on the context as to what it means. So you can find examples where it means both things so it doesn't settle the argument. So it's actually the next phrase for me that I find more powerful. It says, I will keep you from the hour of testing. Not just testing, you see... This is not a promise of some sort of escapism, some light gospel, some American dream style Christianity that's very comfortable and you believe it because, oh yeah, we don't want any trouble. This is a good view to believe because it seems to imply that we'll be out of here for trouble. Forget about that. Again, another red herring, absolute nonsense, nothing to do with what we're talking about. We know full well that believers in this present age are promised tribulation, persecution, trouble. We know that our life is no longer our own. We have given it to our Lord. We know that it may cost us up to and including our own life in service of the Lord. That is something that all saints at all times have have grappled with. So that is not the issue that we're talking about here. And that's why I say it's a red herring. However, this verse seems to imply something different than the period that's been the status quo since the beginning of the church. And that's because it has the definite article in front of it. The hour of testing. So it's not the testing that is the focus, it's the actual time period of the testing that seems to be the focus of this verse. The time period when this testing is happening. So I would say reading this, just sort of seeming to try and follow it logically, contextually, it seems to support the view that the church is promised exemption from that actual time period which would necessitate removal before that happens. And this is, as i confirmed, many other times in Scripture. We will, like I said, look at it more as we go through. But let's talk about what this testing is. It's said to come upon the whole world. No one will escape this at this time to test those who dwell on the earth. And here is a vital part. The word dwell on the earth is a te- technical term in Revelation. You'll see it about nine times, those who dwell on the earth. And it's always used to refer to those who are rejecting God. At this point it's all very clear. There's no sort of people wondering like, well, please Lord, show me more evidence. I'm just not sure, I haven't made up my mind. That's fine. We do that in this age and the Lord's gracious to us. He, he leads us, he sends missionaries and preachers. At this time, things are slightly different. That age has gone. Everyone knows the line in the sand has been drawn And these are people who are confirmed in their rejection of God to the point that it says no matter what happens, they will not repent and ask for forgiveness. And they actually stand in defiance, shaking their fists at God. Just like when Stalin was on his deathbed, you know, in that famous story that he he rose up one last time and he shook his fist to the heavens and then he fell down and he died. That sort of is the sort of rejection that we're talking about here at this time. It is the final... Period of history. This is the tribulation period. Those who steadfastly continue in their rejection of God and are therefore standing in the way of Christ's coming kingdom. And this is the period that we're going to read about. And I'll warn you, it's a heavy period. I feel like we've had a soft introduction to the book looking at the church age. As we move forward, we're going to see some things that should give us all pause for thought, that should give us all c- cause to examine why we are here on this earth as the church. Are we too comfortable here? What are we doing? What is the message of the gospel? What is the truth of Jesus Christ? That is the ultimate question, this person who is being unveiled. This is what I believe this verse is talking about. And yes, we can enjoy discussions about end times and eschatology, but always make sure you're having them with that focus in mind, the larger purpose of the book of Revelation. Let's just finish up this letter. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Again, quickly implies suddenly, as I've said, there is this sense of urgency that comes through in this book. It gives the idea that faithful believers should always be living in the light that Christ is coming soon. We do this by holding fast to his word, by not denying his name, just like these Philadelphian Christians had. They had three main things. They had his word, they had the glorifying his name, and they had dependence on his strength, not their own, and they had an open door for the gospel. That's the mission of the church. We do that until the door is closed, until Jesus calls us home, until we see him in his kingdom. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Pillars obviously speaking of strength and stability. In the city of Philadelphia, it was common practice when a magistrate dedicated a temple, you'd give him a pillar and you'd inscribe his name on it. So if you go to a museum today and you look at all these, they always have these pillars there that seem to be the main thing that lasts from these temples. Often they have names inscribed on them and writing. That's the point in the ancient world. He is saying here that unlike these worldly temples that are going to end up destroyed and in museums, your faithfulness to me will mean that you will have that security that you will be with me in my greater kingdom when it comes. That is one of the promises to these believers here. Not only that, you'll have a new name, the name of God. This is again emphasising the personal relationship and ownership that God has of the believer and it repeats that concept three times here about names. It's again just emphasising our identity is to be found in him and him alone and there's nowhere else we'd rather find it when we look at this world. And then it ends with the phrase that we see in every letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says the churches again a reminder that these letters are for the churches in the first century and every century since until that door closes let us hold fast what we have let us keep his word let us testify to his great name and while that door is still open soon it will close but whilst it's still open we preach and tell people about Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom before that hour of testing comes on the world let us make sure we do our work in his strength, not in our own, lifting up his name, not our own names, and therefore we can have that security that we will be a pillar, that we will have that place of security in the future kingdom of God. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com theologyandapologetics theology and apologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.